Hello, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America, featuring today's top directors sharing behind-the-scenes stories of their latest films and insights into the craft of directing. Please take a second to subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. This episode takes us behind the scenes of director Taika Waititi's new satirical comedy drama, Jojo Rabbit. Set during the waning days of World War II, the film tells the story of Jojo, a young boy whose only friend is an imaginary and idiotic projection of Adolf Hitler. Eager to join the Nazi party, Jojo's worldview is turned upside down when he discovers that his mother is hiding a young Jewish girl in their attic. In addition to Jojo Rabbit, Mr. Waititi's credits include the feature films Thor Ragnarok, Hunt for the Wilder People, Eagle vs. Shark, and What We Do in the Shadows, which he co-directed with Jemaine Clement, the pilot for the television series What We Do in the Shadows, and episodes of the series The Mandalorian, The Inbetweeners, and Flight of the Concords. Following a recent screening of the film at the DGA Theater in New York, Mr. Waititi spoke with director Paul Downs Colazo about filming Jojo Rabbit. Listen on for their spoiler-filled conversation. Congratulations. Well, thank you very much. How do you feel? Wonderful. <laughs> How do you feel? R- wonderful. Great. I saw, I, saw, us? I saw this movie twice today. I saw it this morning in my apartment and again just now, and it's, it's exceptional both times, and I'm really a huge fan of it, so thank Good. you for it. Good thing. Well, you're welcome. Um, I've got questions. No. <laughs> Uh, I'm going to start with the basic stuff that you probably answered a bunch, but everyone probably is interested in, which is the beginning, the genesis, what inspired you, what made you want to tell this story? Yeah, so my mother was, um, she recommended that I read this book um, that is the inspiration for, for the film. And she, yeah, she, she just described it as this, you know, this really like, interesting story about this boy who finds out his mother's hiding this Jewish girl in their attic. Um, I read the book and it's not very, it's not, the tone is very dark and, um, and it's very dramatic and it's not really my style. Um, if you've seen any of my other work, don't do that. I don't do dramas. Um, I'll leave that up to other people. And so I added, so I took the storyline and I added um, just what my, the things that I guess are in my wheelhouse, the sort of sensibilities like, like humour and whimsy uh it's a word i don't really like and then um and and imaginary hitler but there's still <laughs> and welcome to the stage there's Agnes. still there's there's still drama in it and there's still pathos and emotion in it too you know and so it what did it feel like you were combining the style of the book and your own sensibility or did you sort of start fresh I started really like fresh. I mean, I just took that small little little thread from the from the book, um, and the book goes on like years after the war ends, and so it's got, it's a, it takes place in, in a lot bigger world. Um, but I just like the small little storyline yeah. about the about the kids. Um, so, casting this thing, uh-huh. one was you, yeah. casting you in a transformative role of Hitler. Yeah, and so obvious choice. <laughs> yeah. What was where? What, <laughs> what uh, yeah. was the? Was that from the jump? You were like, I'm playing Hitler for sure. Well, growing up in, in the mean streets of New Zealand, there was definitely a childhood dream to 
to take on a role that potentially was going to end my career. So, uh, no, I, when I was writing it in 2011, there was never any intention to play that role. I'm a Polynesian Jew. I'm like, there's no way I'm like, gonna. Uh, yes. Yeah. So anyway, so then, but I and and then I got distracted by making uh, three other movies. And didn't end up making it then. And then, and then six years later, Fox Searchlight said, um, we've always loved this, we want to make it, but we're only interested in doing it if you play Hitler. And so I thought they were crazy. Um, but it took, you know, it took about 17 seconds, and then I was convinced. But what was the, and what was the, what was the logic there? <laughs> well, they, because it was written like, very particularly in my style and in my voice, um, I think they could, like, reading it, they could just picture me doing it. And, and I I'd, I'd honestly think they're right. I probably wouldn't have been happy with other people doing it because right. there's a style to that character that is, I guess, very me in the delivery. And I think in the hands of, let's just call it what it is, in the hands of a better actor um, <laughs> or in the hands of an actor, um, it would have been something different. And I think it takes someone who's got a bit more of a naive style to do this. Also, if you had, I think if you had like a big celebrity playing that role, it would have overshadowed the, the heart of the story of, you know, the, and the, yeah, the focus, which is, should be those kids and Jojo and his mother. And then it just, because then it would just be, the, the posters would just be, you know, that Brad Pitt Hitler movie, right. you know, and so, um, so it's kind of good that it's someone a bit more obscure, <laughs> slightly less obscure than Brad. Um, and did you find that, in being in the movie, it became an extension of directing the film, like that you were setting a tone through your performance? Yeah, but I had to watch that other people didn't copy me because I think, because uh, the only, the, I'm only ever in scenes with Roman and now and then with Scarlett, but, um, but she can't, well, I mean, her char character can't see me. But I had to watch out that other actors didn't see me and think that that was the level of, right. of comedy that we were going for. It's like I was the only one allowed to sort of have that buffoonery going on. Right. And, um, because you have to watch out that, you know, actors, when they think it's a comedy, you know what they're like. <laughs> you know, they just got you know, this, you know, they, and suddenly they just all want to improvise, you know. And um, you know, every actor's an improviser. Um, but their idea of improvising is just, you just say the first thing that comes into your head. So action. <laughs> Round tables are great. <laughs> okay, that was that. <laughs> but, um... Did they you improvise do. as Hitler? I was the only one who pretty much did it. Rebel did a little bit, but she would just riff on like, just, you know, I'd, we would throw lines in and say like, say this, I'd try this one, try this one. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I would, I, 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 I pride myself on, yeah, being able to make it. Also, what's improvising? Every single person on earth is improvising from the moment they wake up. Yeah. <laughs> Actors are like, oh, it's such a special skill. I'm like, every human does that <laughs> every day. Every second of the day, <laughs> so makes it up <laughs> on the spot. <laughs> then the the kid, like, how did you? What is his name? How did you find him? Roman, yeah. So he's um he's from England. And he's incredible. Yeah, for an English kid, he's pretty good. <laughs> uh, um, for one of those colonizing sons of bitch. Uh, so he um I love the English. They're great. We love them in New Zealand. We love having them there. Uh, so he, he'd never acted before, and his father was actually a very celebrated um, cinematographer. 
but he had never acted before and he had never been – I mean, I think it had probably been on a few sets before, but he had never, um, like, been, you know, the focus of that, that, that kind of that, in that world. Um, and he did very, very well. The thing when I cast kids is I, I look for children who resemble as, as close as possible the characters I've written. So that essentially they don't have to do any work. They don't have to do anything except be themselves. Um, and with Jojo, obviously I'm not looking for a kid in the Hitler Youth. I'm not looking for a little Nazi. But I am looking for who he's going to end up being at the end of the film, and which is a sensitive kid who cares deeply about other people. And that's who Roman is. So at the end of the film when they're dancing, that's essentially Roman. And then you, you know, sort of like reverse engineer the character so, so, so we start the film with him indoctrinated and you know, having these crazy world views. And then you sort of use the rest of the film to strip that away, to reveal Roman. Did you shoot in order as much as you could or all, did you shoot all over? I can't really remember. It's like uh, when, like, when women talk about childbirth. And it's like yeah, it's pain like excruciating it just goes and away. Just yeah. I don't remember a thing. Let's do it again. Uh, so it's sort of like that. Like yeah. I know it's traumatic making every film. Yeah. But like I can't remember the order of events. I barely remember being there. Uh, I know. Um, which is a shame because I'm sure what it was. No, it's not a shame. I'm glad, yeah. I'm glad I blocked it out. It's yeah. horrible. You've got the best part here. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, but it was... Where did it you was shoot? actually no. I, I remember it actually being kind of all over the place because of the schedule. Well, did you because end up of and the actors as well? We had did, to block shoot them. Did you find that you had to put or you wanted to put your scenes all together at the end of the schedule or the beginning of the schedule so you could focus and not split your attention, or did you just by no, need have? To I was the one who sort of who who was um, I had to compromise the most. This was year one. You can see that in the acting and the part. <laughs> it's like it suffered. Um, no, because like we would block shoot with different actors coming yeah. in and out of town, and also a lot of it's to do with the kids and how many hours you can work them. Originally, we were going to try and shoot this in Germany, in, in Berlin at Studio Babelsberg. Um, turns out the Germans have really stepped up their human rights uh, laws, <laughs> and um, you can only work a child for three hours a day. So I wasn't having any of that. Um, I'm from New Zealand; you can work them for like eleven, and it's true. So I thought, let's go east. Let's go to the eastern blocks. I've got no laws. So we go to Prague. Five hours. So it's like, even then. <laughs> They've got to fix things over there. <laughs> For people who want to shoot movies with kids. <laughs> so you shot in Prague? We shot in Prague. And you can only work five hours a day with the kids? Is that true? Yeah. But here's a loophole. If any of you want to do this, you can shoot in Prague. Yeah, they've got a five-hour-per-day kid um, labor law. But get an English kid. And then they're subject, they're subject to English laws. So we could work him for 10 hours a day. Oh, wow. Uh-huh. <laughs> Loopholes. So how many days total? 40. 40. 40. And was there a lot on the stage or no? Yeah, well, the interiors of the house was, were on stage. I think it, would be, it felt like about high, I would like to say half, but not. I realized how much of the film is in that room. Quite a lot. Yeah. Did it change a lot on stage? Did it change? Did did you find you adding writing stuff since you were writing? Also, were you changing the story at all, or moments in the story sort of as you went along, or was it pretty set from the jump? It was set from from right from the outset, and um, so like in 2011. Since then, the script hasn't really changed much. I just added more dialogue for for the actors, and like when Sam came in, I was really happy about that, and and I thought I want. I want more from this character now, and and so I gave him a lot more stuff to do in the beginning of the film, and 
um, sort of developed a bit more his um, his secret life, I suppose. Let's call it what it what it is. He's gay. It's not very subtle either. <laughs> I know that. <laughs> and so. Also, like you started the film with this like Beatlemania sort of like fever of sort of the, the the pop hit that Hitler was, and set up this satirical tone for the film. And then the moment comes where the bunny's killed, which is probably the first moment I'd say in the film where stakes are established that are like more, higher than the satire. That mm-hmm. there's real danger. And then immediately after that, sort of you come back as Hitler and bring the levity as Hitler back into the film. And so I'm guessing that that was a tightrope to walk, going, especially in the edit, I'm guessing. Yeah, yeah. Is finding that balance. And so I'm curious what that yeah, process well, was like. Yeah, well, the edit is where I've shaped all of, I mean, everyone's films, but my ones in particular, which have always been a mix tonally of, of light and dark and, and, and also just, you know, Switching on a dime to you know from between comedy and then suddenly into something very tragic and and hard hitting, and and it's not really a, just to kind of it's not it's not to confuse audiences or to like throw them off. It's just I feel like for me that's a more satisfying uh, way of telling a story, and it and it feels more indicative of the human experience every day because you know no one lives their life just in um, you know a broad comedy. From you know, from sun up to sundown, um, and so and and I'm yeah. There's not many people um, that I know that you know just a straight drama without any like you know. If you're in a in a time of intense darkness, you do find light. You do find ways of laughing, and that's the the nature of humans is to be attracted to comedy and to into laughing. You've got to find ways, and it's a survival technique. And so, so if anyone feels like you know, like now and then, you hear one or two people say, "Well, I'm not sure if it's a you know, right time to be using comedy with this subject matter," um, which kind of irks me because it's you know it is 80 years since the Great Dictator came out, and um, and comedy has always been a fantastic weapon against regimes and bigotry and dictatorships and um, when well, you can highlight absurdity, you can, yeah. It's a great story about um, Groucho Marx that. And I'm sure some of you know, but it's it was like in the 30s that his I think it was his daughter and her friends were going to um, to a country club in LA and they wouldn't let his daughter into the pool because she was Jewish and they had a no Jews in the pool policy in Beverly Hills. <laughs> and uh, then so instead of you know retaliating with anger and conflict in a typical Groucho style, he, he writes a letter saying. To be fair, she's only half Jewish, so would you consider letting her into the pool up to her waist? <laughs> and so when you poke holes with humour and uh, you know, at the absurdity and the ridiculousness of these, of these, uh, you know, these ideas, it's an easier way to poke more holes because like, there's no real defence against that because it is the truth, but it's in a way where you're, like, you know, you're not screaming at them. Yeah, and like subversive commentary. Yeah, and, you, and it's disarming for, yeah. you know, for, to, for them because they're like, oh, I don't know, because he's not actually attacking me. He's just poking fun, and which is why bullies freak out so much. And like, you know, when you bully someone in power, or yeah, you know, sorry, when you make fun of someone in power, they will stop running a country to like attack you on Twitter, you know, because <laughs> they like, can't handle that being laughed at. And so, so comedy's always been very important to me, and I've always maintained that I'll you know continue doing, you know, blending the two, blending comedy and drama. And was there- 
sorry, and, and so, so to your point, yeah, the, um, the edit is where I, I, I find that all. And we tested this film. I test all of my films. We tested this one maybe 15 times with audiences. Because you, and with this one, it's very delicate. Like, I can't get away with as much. Not that I'm pushing. I'm, not that I ever was ever trying to push the, the limit because I'm from New Zealand. We're too polite. And it's just not – I feel uncomfortable, especially with the subject matter, making other people feel uncomfortable. Right. So I'm trying to be kind of delicate but also use the humor to poke fun at the Third Reich. And right. Like, you, you're, you're being provocative but you don't want to be insensitive. They, totally. And – it's just not worth it for me right. to be. I'm not a shock comedian or something. And right. it's like, I don't want to be l'enfant terrible of cinema. So that's sort of for young people to try and do that. Right. So I just you, wanted to relax and you, like were, chill out. Were there moments in the edit where you're sort of like, ooh, can we? There's only one moment that was to do. <laughs> there, was a, there was one moment that I knew was never going to be in the movie, but it was to do with. Um, uh, me calling out Hugo Boss, and the um, and, and, the, and I was like, see, so oh, <laughs> but it was just like a dumb joke that I thought oh, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna like film go, it. I know it's never yeah, gonna happen, went, yeah. but I'm gonna film it more for the crew. Just, to, like, have just it. to have, have to go, yeah, you designed all the uniforms. Um, but yeah. so, so over the course of those fifteen tests, did it change a lot? And and as it changed, did you find yourself falling in love with different parts of it? Like, were you pivoting in a way that your soul was pivoting to? Yeah, well, my re normal reaction is to, because I'm in all my movies, usually, usually smaller, um, smaller parts. And, and so my initial reaction whenever I edit is to cut most of me out. You should answer that. And um, it's to cut myself out as much as possible. But then, but then, you know, after three tests and stuff like that, there were times when I thought, actually, you know what, I think it needs more. And I found it really entertaining watching myself. Um, and, yeah, I just, there was something, I just, I enjoyed coming when that character came on. And I can distance myself from myself as an actor now. Like, I can go, hey, it's actually pretty funny. Like, I really like that, and I'd like to see more of that. Um, but the, I think the thing, I mean, I was, I've always been in love with all of um, uh, Jojo and Rosie's scenes, the, the because uh, I love Scarlett's performance in this, I think it's one of the one of the great best things she's done. I, I've never seen her do anything like this before. Um, but I would shift a lot, and and it did. The structure changed all the time. You know, it became very dramatic at certain times. You know, with, and then it would become a lot more comedic, and that was sort of I felt like then the heart of the film suffered. But it changed a lot, and um, and it was just about asking the audiences what they wanted again and again. Um, I, I want to open it up to the audience for questions because uh, we have a little bit of time for that. Does anyone have any questions they want to ask? That's not a question. That's an order. Yeah. Also, I'm going to repeat you the question. You need to go up at the end of your sentence. <laughs> Talk about the young girl. Girl? Yeah. <laughs> she was exquisite. Um, uh, she, yeah, Thomas and Mackenzie. She's an incredible, incredible actor. She was in um, Leave No Trace. Um, that was her first film that she did uh, with Ben Foster. And she... Uh, she's from New Zealand, and um, I've seen her as a little kid, like running around the streets in, of Wellington, because I'm very good friends with her her parents, who are sort of from the theatre scene. And um, so, yeah, you know, I've seen her rolling around as like a baby, and every now and then, um, oh, there's Thomason, oh, there's Thomason, oh, there's Thomason on a poster for a movie, and 
so just auditioned her the normal way and she came in. She was and right from the beginning she was on the in the top three um on our list. And we auditioned for a few months. Yeah, yeah. And it was really important to me for that for that character for her to be strong and to not be a victim in the sense that we've all yeah, you know, we've often seen characters like that in, in a very in a sort of like an intense victim state. And for, when I wrote when I started writing her, I made sure that she she often was going to be the bully in the situation because I like I, she did her own research, you know. You can imagine what you know research she did, and as you should. Um, but then I said, "That's great. You should totally go and visit those places, read those books. That's good. But also, I want you to watch Heather's and Mean Girls because the backstory for, for me for this character is that she was probably because she's good looking. She was probably in the very popular group at school." Not necessarily one of the nicest kids at school to other kids. Maybe a bully. Maybe picked on, you know, less fortunate kids, as teenagers do. And now has been thrust into the situation where she's living in the attic and had that whole life of popularity and being cool taken away from her. And that's how I would justify bullying a 10-year-old boy and picking on him and manipulating that situation for my own benefit because it, he's the enemy. He represents the people who put me here. So it gave her every permission to do that and to really mess with him. Right, like the situation gave her fragility, so you found whatever juxtaposed that, which was like a strength of character. Yeah, I wanted that. her to strangle them all the time, yeah. to like, just to, like, to make him scared of ever going in the room. Well, and the other thing is you shot, I mean, this is my read on it, but you shot your... The, our perception or the camera's perception of her through his point of view, which was a horror film. Like, I mean, her That's entrance right. is a horror film and yeah. you maintained that with the walking down the stairs of the sort of unknown and the danger of this, yeah. of this I think character. In, you know, I think, like, like if, I can imagine if, um, if Guillermo del Toro did this film that he would maybe, like from Jojo's point of view, maybe have horns or like a little tail that you see slithering through the door, which would be pretty cool. But that's his, yeah, for me... That part of it's like let the right one in or something, you know. It's like, right. oh, you've got this monster in your house because all he knows is stuff from propaganda and the books that they were given as kids. And I had to look at those books and it's just disgusting. But like, you know, there were, you know, it's like the uh, was it the evil toadstool is one of them, and uh, yeah. there was, you know, but just like the the caricatures and like the horns and the devil tails and all that stuff. So in his mind, it's it is a creature. That's living upstairs, and like it, like you were talking about comedy, using bringing comedy to the subject matter. There's a trust of the audience. Very basically, we know that Hitler did terrible things, and this was a terrible atrocity. And you're trusting the audience to know that as you're telling this story, and you're also yeah. bringing that trust to this character too. To that you're trusting the audience to see her as not the horror movie that this guy is seeing her as, as first, the yeah. kid. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, who else? Yeah. The question is, what was the thought process behind killing the mother, and did you initially want to kill her? Um, I, didn't, I mean, I don't want to, but I had to. Um, that part was actually in the book as well, and that, that was something that I found very, um, a really important part of, of the book and of JoJo's story is, um, is knowing that that happened and that, you know, sometimes the good guys lose. And... Um, and yeah, I mean, I wanted that character to, I wanted people to love that character so much. And really, the film is, is sort of a love letter to single mothers. You know, I was raised by a single mother, and she, so the, what, I, what I got from reading that book 
and when I was trying to tell that story was just, you know, that I, and then having become a father, it, like had completely, I'd overlooked throughout my life the sacrifices that parents make in general, but especially solo parents and how hard it is. And imagine being in a situation like that war at that time and having to, and trying desperately to pull your child back from the dark side, um, knowing that if he's, if he's brainwashed, he can tell his superiors, mother, mum's trying to uh, convince me not to be part of you. Mum says, you guys are crazy. Because if that happened, she would be gone anyway. And so it's a delicate situation for us. So the only tool that she's got really is, is, is play and clowning and trying to bring him back, keep him in the realm of, of, of innocence and being a child. And so when I was writing that, a lot of the influence for her character was um, Ellen Burstyn and Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, which I think is one of the great solo mother roles. And, um, and she would do anything for us. And she's fun. She's so fun and, and, and charismatic in that film. And so, yeah. I used to, when I was growing up in Wellington in the 80s, I grew up on a street which was only solo mothers, just an entire street of single mothers. And we used to, me and my 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 uh, friends we used to roll around in gangs uh bullying kids who had two parents <laughs> we're gonna pick on kids hey man i heard you've got a dad <laughs> yes the question is did you test this with the children no i didn't test this with, with the children um the my hope is though that that young audiences and I'm not sure I mean hopefully 11 is a fine age to see something like this Roman was 10 when he shot this and he very much understood what the story was about and what was happening and I feel like if he's 10 and he can get it from being in it and being you know like totally submerged within the, the content then I totally believe a, a 10 or an 11 year old will get something out of this and even if you don't understand the history of World War Two in the Holocaust, you can, it's, I think it's quite easy, even if you don't even know who Hitler is, I think you can work out he's some sort of weird German adult friend who has got some messed up ideas, who's the sort of the dark, the twisted side of Jojo's conscience. And then all the rest of it is, you know, is I think kind of explained. But yeah, I do, I want, I want young people to see that. I mean, that's, Really, the the reason that um, that the dialogue is so so contemporary, people didn't speak like that back then. I know that, you know, there's a few needle drops with contemporary songs. It's because I want young people to see this and be able to hear the way that they speak in a film like this, so that they can understand that this can happen right now. And it, it we are dangerously close to that. The Guardian last year, um, they released the um, results of a survey which said that 41% of Americans and 66% of American millennials have never heard of Auschwitz. And so there's like, the, and if, so those stats are staggering. And in 2019, the fact you have to make a movie that says, the message of which is, don't be a Nazi. This, this movie shouldn't really need to exist. <laughs> but yeah. We have time for one more question. The question was, are there um, alt-right people who are identifying too much with this character and reaching out to people involved in the film? I don't know. I don't know if there are. I mean, 
look, I in my mind, I know there are like a lot of dumb people out there, and you would have to be a particular level of idiot to think that this film is for you if you are a racist. <laughs> and but I have been proven wrong, and I've been I've been, I've been surprised before. That I'm sure there are some total morons out there who will see this and go, yes. Uh, like this is yeah, Hitler in a movie. Like you could just they, people will twist anything to sort of like yeah. know, to represent what they want. So maybe, but I don't know but the, I the backstory to that. It's good to end on this that people are some people are dumb. So anyway, <laughs> <are> dumb. <laughs> yeah, we need to keep making these movies because people are dumb. Yeah. <laughs> um, thank you all. Thank you so much for coming, for guys. Coming. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q and A. If you'd like to hear more, you can find past episodes of The Director's Cut wherever you listen to podcasts. Stay tuned in the coming weeks for more great Q&As with directors Greta Gerwig and Noah Baumbach. And be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow cinephiles find the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally. 